if you're not used to sitting, listening to someone read a long passage for a long time, get ready. About two minutes, it'll be good. Revelation 21 says this, then I, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as a crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, pearl, uh, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth am amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a, pearl, of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and the night will be no more. They will need no lamp of, or sun. The Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would bless the reading of this word, that you would write it on our hearts, that you would open ears, you would open hearts, you would open minds to receive the beauty and the grace that is found in your son, Jesus Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so my name is Gavin. I'm the pastor here in New Springs Church. Welcome. Again, if it's your first time, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can fill out a Connect card. And really the purpose of that is we believe that uh, church isn't something that we just do on Sunday mornings, come and hear songs and hear a message preached, but church is a community. And there's people here who love each other dearly, who have each other's backs. Uh, and if you desire to be a part of a community where people would have your back and you have theirs, then uh, we want to help you enter into that. We've got women's groups, young adults groups, men's groups. Um, I think that's it. But we'll add more as time goes on. Um, so that what we've been doing the last uh, 10, 11 weeks is we've been covering the entire story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, obviously, we haven't preached every single passage that would be impossible in this short amount of time. But what we wanted to do was demonstrate the grand plan of God from beginning to end and how he includes us as a part of that. And so we get here to this final chapter in the book of Revelation where we see the end of all things. And really what the message is, is a message of hope. That's why the whole book was written. That's why this letter uh, was written to the church. And the hope is of eternity and redemption, and it rests securely in the hands of an almighty God who can make sure that it happens the way he says it will. And so this morning, we're going to see that the new creation that God promises, that you heard read just now, provides the secure hope that we desire and the secure hope that we need. You've probably heard of the book of Revelation and uh, maybe had some fearful thoughts in approaching it. You just heard me read about seven bowls and uh, jewels that I couldn't pronounce, um, angels and all kinds of fanciful stuff. And you say, you know what, let me stick to the gospel where Jesus says, do this and live. I can understand that and I'll stay away from Revelation. Uh, but the book of Revelation, actually, the purpose of its existence is to bring a tremendous amount of hope. And I would argue, and we'll argue throughout this, uh, throughout this sermon today, that without hope, you can't really live in this life. See, what carries you on to the next day and to the day after that is a hope. And what we hope is that it's rooted in Jesus Christ because that is an eternal hope. Revelation is the latest book written in the Bible. It's probably written around 90 A.D. The Roman emperor at the time was a guy named uh, Domitian. Uh, and during Domitian's reign, he executed great persecution against Christians. And so conscious to John's mind as he writes this letter, who John, by the way, is in exile on an island, having been uh, severely beaten and persecuted physically by the Roman government, and on this island, he's writing an encouragement to Christians who are facing physical turmoil. Here's what's coming for you in the end, and here's why you can hold out hope. 
These are Christians being killed for their faith. The evidence is throughout the entire book as John highlights martyrs and saying, your blood will be vindicated by the lamb who sits on the throne. And so he paints this extravagant picture of a spiritual battle where Jesus Christ ultimately reigns victorious. And because he reigns victorious, the people over which Christ is king are also victorious in reigning with him. That would be Christians. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ has now received him as their king over their heart, and you reign victorious along with him for all eternity. You can imagine what a uh, what a great hope that would provide to people who don't know whether or not the next day is promised. And so this morning, we're going to examine that hope in three ways. First, the context of hope. So we'll look a little bit at the historical scope of how Christians have always been persecuted. The content of the hope, what is some of the symbolism that I read about means, and then the conclusion of the hope. Where is this all going? So first, the context of hope. Uh, somewhat unique to the Christian faith is the history of persecution that has driven it Uh, to where we are today. See, first off, we worship a Savior who was crucified. Jesus wasn't a glorious, well-respected person who uh, had a high office and was a high-ranking official. He was someone who was tried, executed as a criminal, died on a cross, nailed to a cross like a common criminal. So that's where our faith starts, with a crucified Messiah who was treated like a criminal. In Mark chapter 13, this is one of the passages that is echoed in my heart since I first became a Christian. Jesus promised his disciples, you will be hated by all for my namesake. You believe in me, you follow me, people aren't going to hold you in high esteem. You will be hated. Difficulty is written into the very fabric of what it is that we believe. We see right after Jesus Christ dies, resurrects, ascends into heaven. He sends out his disciples to go and proclaim the gospel to the world. They were met with severe persecution. They were under the the empire of Rome. And during that that empire, Christians were thrown into prisons. Uh, There's records of them being put into the Colosseum and and devoured by live animals for people to watch. Thrown into the ring as gladiators, not trained to fight, but they were just there to die. Crucified on crosses, lit on fire horrible, horrible evils done to Christians because they were accused of the crime of atheism. See, the Romans believed that there was a a pantheon of gods, different people to worship and different deities to bow down to. And as is true to our faith, we believe that Jesus Christ is our only Lord. And so by believing that, I'm not bowing down to any Roman statue. So the Roman government would take Christians and imprison them and bring about persecution, hated for the sake of Jesus Christ's name. You fast forward in history to the emergence of Islam in the 7th and 8th centuries. Much of the same thing happened. Islam advanced by uh, by the sword, and Christians often got in the way. You've got these two different faiths in the same part of the world, and Islam going into Christian areas and uh, sacking villages and ransacking the temple uh, and things of that nature. Then you had the Ottoman Empire follow up right after that in the 11th and 13th centuries. They enacted laws that would force Christians into slavery if they didn't convert to Islam. People, for Jesus' namesake, being hated by those around them. Persecution continued on in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries as the Reformation was enacted. Uh, We just celebrated that October 31st while, while we were dancing around in our costumes. Don't forget, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of that church 
and Wittenberg, and right after that, anyone who believed what Martin Luther believed, that justification is by faith alone, stood, uh, stood the threat of being sent to jail, of being killed for their beliefs, of being burned alive. And ultimately, we reach the 20th and 21st centuries, the age in which we now live, which is actually the bloodiest centuries in the history of the world. More Christians have been killed in the last 120 years than there have in the entire history of Christianity. When I read that, that blew me away. But you think about the reigns of people like Stalin and Hitler and, and Pol Pot and some of the things that are happening with Boko Haram now uh, you know, in, in Africa. Christians are killed all the time because we put faith in the name of Jesus Christ and he promised we'd be persecuted and we'd be hated for what it is that we believe. Thankfully for us, it's a good week to be thankful, right? Thanksgiving coming up on Thursday. Thankfully for us, we don't live in a time, age, or place where any of that is true for us. No one's threatening our lives. You're not going to go to jail for believing what you believe. You are free to come here each and every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and no one's going to bother you. The most you might get is uh, friends or family teasing you uh, for spending your Sunday morning in an elementary school. And maybe that's justified, but we... We're here to worship the king. What is similar, so although we don't share in, the, per, in, the, in the, the physical persecution that the people John is writing to are facing, what is similar is the personal suffering that we experience. See, I hope we don't discredit that, that just because we don't face this, uh, these violent threats from authorities that maybe we have it easy. Maybe we do, but we still face hardships when it comes to jobs. Hardships when it comes to family. Hardships when it comes to relationships. See, what we go through here in South Florida is a common struggle that most of us have. See, we live in a place where the cost of living is exceedingly high. Uh, it seems like jobs are very content with paying you the bare minimum, as much as they can legally get away with paying you without really breaking the bank. Property taxes, housing costs, relationships, divorce rates are through the roof, as always. We live in a no-fault divorce state. Kids maybe not behaving the way you would like them to, and this creates deep personal suffering. Maybe it extends to the point where you're wondering if, God, if there's any hope in God at all. Sicknesses, lack of health, suicide rates are through the roof in our country right now. And if we can't see beyond the here and now and have something to hope for in the future, we're doomed. And so this book of Revelation provides that hope that we all need. It details a future that's a reality for all of us. It's not a blanket hope of fantasy and fairy tales that just make us feel good, but this is actuality. There really is a city that's coming. There really is a king who's coming to reign. There really is a resurrection of the dead of which all who have faith in Jesus Christ are included. And so let's look at the content of this hope together so we can see what it is that Christ is promising us. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and while there's hope in that, the grand hope is here in Revelation 21 and 22. I was reading just recently, um, there's an essay that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote uh, a long time ago. He's the guy who did Lord of the Rings. He's a Christian man, friends with C.S. Lewis, and he wrote an essay on fantasy literature, basically giving an apologetic for why is it that we like to read these fantastical stories? Why are we captivated by Harry Potter? Why do we buy so much uh, merchandise for 
Star Wars? Why are we captivated by Lord of the Rings with these beasts who talk and space adventures and flying people? Why do we like that stuff? Well, Tolkien's argument is that there are hints of a world that we long for and a world that actually is to come. Now, don't hear me incorrectly. We're not actually going to you know, fly X-wings and shoot down Death Stars. That's not, that's not going to happen. But this idea of an existence where suffering is gone, where the hero ultimately wins, where we have this euphoric existence, that is coming. And that's written on our hearts, and that's why we long for it. That's why we read stories about it. That's why we watch programs that have that kind of a hope. This future actually exists. And there's so much imagery in the passage that we just read. I'm not going to be able to get into all of it but I'd like to highlight a few. So the three I want to look at, or four I want to look at, are uh, this image of the bride, the dwelling place, and the city. And then I'll tell you the fourth later. So you can't leave early. we got to stay until I get to that fourth one. First is the bride. Verses 2 and 9. So verse 2, John, this vision that he's getting from an angel in heaven, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. He sees a city wearing a dress. This is strange. Verse 9 says this. Then came, out, uh, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So what is it that John's talking about, this bride that he sees in his vision? Well, this is the people of God, the people of God who are fully redeemed, sanctified, dressed, and purified, and all their beauty. See, throughout Scripture, God always compares his people to a bride, God being the husband, his people being the bride. See, we are a people who have been saved, redeemed, and blessed with eternal love and commitment from God. As a matter of fact, marriage as it exists is a picture of God's love for his people. That's why the institution is there, to reflect God's love for his people. If you ask that question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, the bride or the illustration of the bride as the church? Well, actually, what came first is God's love for his people, and then he institutes marriage as a representation of that. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about that mystery. And so the love of a husband for his wife is derivative and an example of God's faithful commitment to his people. He loves us. He's committed to us. He sacrificed for us. He died on our behalf. He continues to go before us, and he's preparing a place for all of us. So the wedding imagery is vivid. Next, the dwelling place. Or before I get to the dwelling place, this scene that's described here is described like a wedding. I want you to miss that point. For many of us, and uh, many of you maybe hope to have this one day, but for many people, one of the most glorious moments of their life is their wedding day. Bride dressed in her beautiful white, walking down the aisle, there's flowers, there's beautiful music, there's celebration, there's wine, there's laughter, there's hopefully a honeymoon to follow. It's a joyous time. And God is saying that when Jesus Christ returns to redeem all things, it's like a wedding celebration. You can get the picture in your mind. And then he says it's like a dwelling place in a city. So John describes this as the dwelling that God makes with man. He alludes to it at least five times and probably more in the passage. He describes this city that's coming down out of heaven from God. And at first glance, there's nothing appealing about a city at all. 
I just mentioned honeymoon. I remember on our honeymoon, uh, my wife and I, we got to go to Italy. You're judging me right now. I say for a long time, we don't have money like that. This, you know, when you get married, it's a lucrative business. People give you gift cards and we thought we were rich. We spent it all in Italy. We were out of money by day six. I think on the seventh day, we just sat in the lobby of the hotel, just waiting, waiting for our plane trip home. Uh, but while we were there, one of the cities that we visited was Rome. And our experience in Rome was uh, we saw a mini terrorist attack, a man with a large meat cleaver threatening a young girl who was there on vacation. Uh, we were out to dinner and we saw this woman across from us who was bloody and fainting while we're trying to eat our dinner. I think the next night we went out to get dinner and someone was trying to sell us selfie sticks. I'm like, dude, I just want, I want my salad, I want my pasta, I need you to leave. So what is there appealing about a city? Why would God use this imagery of a city coming down from heaven? Because if you're picturing Rome, you're like, I don't want that. I don't want to live in a city. But here's what that, what, here's what that example means. First, what's in a city? A city's filled with people. At the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 1, God said that he wanted to fill the earth with his glory. And he created Adam and Eve in his image as his representatives. And so people who are filled with the image of God who represent his glory, God loves them. See, and the problem that we've created is by sinning against that God and being poor representations of his glory. But when Jesus Christ returns and sin and death is expelled from this planet, all you get is people who perfectly reflect the glory of Jesus Christ, and he loves them. This city coming down from heaven, filled with the glory of God and these image bearers who represent him perfectly. Secondly, this city is where the presence of God is. That's what John says throughout this chapter. We've talked before about how the Garden of Eden is described in Genesis as this magnificent place that's God's sanctuary. You have this beautiful scenery of jewels and, and rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden. And as we read here at the end of the book, you see the same thing. All those jewels that I couldn't pronounce and the river that's flowing out from this city, it's to draw our minds back to this paradise that God created in the beginning. See, God makes his dwelling with man once again, and John describes it in extravagant terms for us. We even see there in uh, Re Revelation 22, verse 2, that there's the tree of life. It's returned. And from the tree of life, we get the healing for the nations. See, John's intention is clear. He's once again painting for us a picture of this new creation as God intended. Perfect peace, perfect harmony, no sin, no sickness, no death, only the presence of God and the people he loves. Remember, Moses desired this presence of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Where the tabernacle that God commanded Moses to build was a representation of God's presence amongst the people. And inside the tabernacle, it's adorned with jewels and, and imagery of the tree of life and all of this stuff that's meant to draw us back to the Garden of Eden because that's where the presence of God was. Adam and Eve dwelt with God without fear. They were naked and unashamed, walking with God. And in one of the chapters, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses actually pleads with God to not let his presence go from him. He says this. He says, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. See, God had promised to give the Israelites the promised land. And he started to make threats because the Israelites were complaining. And he said, I'm going to go ahead and send you to the promised land, but I'm not coming with you. 
And Moses, acting as a mediator on behalf of the people, prays to God and says, don't send us anywhere without your presence. It's just not worth it to go without you. He continues on and says, is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? See, Moses understood the importance of the presence of God. It's what we need. We have to have it. We were born desiring it. See, whether or not you're aware of it, your heart longs for the presence of God, the sense of security that you desire, the reason that you work so hard at your job to make an income. What you're trying to do is provide a secure life for yourself and your family. You want to feel okay. You want to have a house that lasts, that withstands the, uh, the, the, the figurative storms of life and the real ones. Hurricane comes, you want to have the money to put up shutters and have your house last. You want to have money in the bank so that you can pay your bills, medical bills, hospital bills, housing bills, whatever it is. See, it's security that you're after, and it's security that you won't ever find in material things. So you can consult the wealthiest people in the world, and they'll be the first to tell you that all the money, all of the riches, all of the success that they have, it doesn't fill their hearts the way they thought it would. See, that security that we desire can only be filled by the presence of God, this eternal security of a hope that lasts forever. See, the satisfaction that you're looking for by having a certain level of health and a certain level of, li of lifestyle, all of that fades. You're not going to get that satisfaction out of the things in this life that you chase. See, we kinda, it's, it's almost like we're chasing a rabbit, and maybe every now and then you get close enough to the rabbit to touch its tail, but then it's gone again. And that's what this life is like. If you haven't experienced that yet, just live a little more. It's coming. You're going to chase something. You're going to get it and realize it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Only Jesus Christ and his presence in your heart can fill that desire for security and satisfaction. But here, what John promises us is a security and satisfaction that's beyond comprehension. It's eternal. It does exactly what it promises to do. See, God promises through John that what we get is God and his presence and our security forever. And finally, we get to the conclusion of our hope. I was also reading earlier this week. Maybe you guys are proud of me. I read two things this week. I'm feeling good. I was reading this, uh, this book by a man named Howard Thurman. He's an author. Uh, he was a civil rights activist. He was a theologian at Boston University. And he gave, a, uh, he gave a speech at Harvard back in the 1940s. And the nature of his speech was to examine the old Negro spirituals from, uh, from those who were enslaved. And when you examine those songs, these songs are all over the Internet. You've probably sung some of them yourself. You see that they contain language like this, like Revelation, this magnificent hope and jewels and this God on wings who's come to save them. And so critical scholarship looks back at the Negro spirituals, and their assessment is these people wrote this as kind of a fanciful hope to help them get through the day. They're being beaten. They've been taken from their family. They're working for someone vicious without pay. And so they've come up with fairy tales to make them feel better. And what Howard Thurman does in his essay, you can find it online. If, if you're interested, I'll get you the name of it um, after. But what he says is that uh, this isn't just an otherworldly emphasis of fanciful hope, but rather these hopes are real. He had this to say. 
The Christian faith taught a people how to ride high to life, to look squarely in the, in faith, in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as the raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment, with all of its cruelty, could not crush. I'll say that again. They found a real hope in Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, that no matter what the circumstances were, they couldn't crush their hope. See, they believed, they knew for a sh without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is true. This is a real God who really came, lived in the flesh, died on the cross, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit into the hearts of people like them, shackled and enslaved. No hope except in Jesus Christ. And so whatever it is that ails us, it probably doesn't compare. And if they can hold out hope in this Messiah, we can hold out hope as well. And where did that hope come from? It came from the Jesus Christ that we read about in this Bible. See, what they saw in Scripture is what we see now in this passage. I told you there were four things. We looked at the bride, we looked at the dwelling place, we looked at the city. But there's also a lamb seated on a throne. See, the last image is this lamb, five times that John says in this passage, who's seated on a throne. And this same imagery is present in countless other places in the Bible. We always hear Jesus referred to as a lamb. But take a minute to think about what it is that the Bible is trying to communicate about our Savior. See, the lamb was the animal that was slain at Passover back in Exodus 12. You remember God sends this plague to Egypt, says, I'm going to kill all of the firstborn. Well, in order for them to be saved, they had to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the door. And so the lamb was their ticket to salvation. The lamb was the animal on the Day of Atonement. So once a year, there was a holiday. It's Yom Kippur that we know it as now. Once a year, there was a holiday where the high priest would go into the inner sanctuary. He'd sacrifice a lamb. He'd sprinkle the blood of that lamb on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was to atone for the sins of the priest and for all the people of Israel. And they had to do it year after year after year. And then you get to John chapter 1. And in verse 29, John the disciple says, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Why is Jesus called the Lamb? It's not because he's docile and weak and not very intelligent and cute and cuddly. Jesus Christ is our Lamb because he sacrificed himself on our behalf to take care of the sins that we couldn't take care of on our own. But John doesn't see a dead Lamb. That's not what he sees in this vision. You read it again, this Lamb is speaking. And he's seated, and he's seated on a throne. Well, where's this throne imagery coming from? Maybe it's just the basic idea of a king, but I think there's more than that. See, we looked a few weeks ago at 2 Samuel 7, and David in his large palace is wanting to be able to bless God and build a large palace for him. And God says, I don't dwell in palaces or tents or any of that stuff. But here's what I'm going to do for you, David. I'm going to build you a house. And by house, it's a, he's, he means dynasty. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And the king is going to come from your line. And I'm going to give you a throne that lasts forever. And we get to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And we're told that there's a genealogy of this man, Jesus Christ. Son of Abraham, son of David. See, Jesus Christ is this lamb who was sacrificed on our behalf. And he's also the king who was promised for all eternity the lamb seated on the throne 
who goes before us. That's incredible imagery. Here's the lamb sacrificed for us on his throne, ruling the nations, surrounded by jewelry, this city of glass, of gold. The reason the gold imagery is there, because when you go into the tabernacle, all of the items that Moses had to make was in gold. And now it's not just items in gold, but the entire city is gold. Why? Because the presence of God is there. And so the entire planet is filled with his majesty. This is why John can say that death will be no more and every tear will be wiped away. It's what he says in Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, if you worship Jesus, you worship a real king who rules on the throne now. You worship a real king who rules over your hearts now. That means that poverty, sickness, uncertainty, dissatisfaction, brokenness, depression, it all has its season and it all has its end. See, when I read this chapter, all of the things that ail me, all of the things that ail you, none of it is there. This isn't fanciful hope. This isn't a movie. This isn't a book by J.R.R. Tolkien. This is the God of the universe making a promise to all of us. This is what he intended our world for. This is where we're going when we believe in Jesus Christ. And so when you have those struggles and the temptation is, I really don't see the light of day. I don't see where the money is coming from to pay these bills. I don't see a day where my kid's ever going to behave and do what it is that I tell them to. I don't see where this relationship's going to work out. This marriage has been so rocky. I don't know that there's ever an end to it where it's ever going to get better. This job, awful. I'm stuck in it. I hate my boss and my coworkers. There's no hope. But what, what you're promised here in Jesus Christ is that there's hope beyond this world. And if slaves literally shackled to houses outside picking cotton with bloody hands can write down these beautiful words about a Savior that they hope in, you can share in the same hope as well. And so I encourage you to read these words over and over and over again this week. Revelation 21 and 22. This city coming down from heaven. This God coming to redeem you. These resurrected people worshiping and praising the king for all eternity. That's where you're going if you believe in Jesus Christ. It's guaranteed. It's secure. Nothing can take it away from you. And so you put your hope in that. You're good forever. This is the Christ that we hope in. This is the Christ who came to rescue you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a hope in which we can be secure, one that's true, that's based in reality, not fanciful tales, not, not an imaginary friend to bring me comfort when I feel down, but a real historical God who existed in history, who became a man on our behalf and died for the sins that we couldn't pay for, who rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and said to his disciples, I'm not leaving you as orphans, but I'm sending you a helper. And this helper lives within our hearts this morning, even now. As we hear scripture read, as we hear it preached, as we get ready to sing songs, it's the spirit of God in our hearts crying out within us. The down payment and the secure hope that we have, the spirit is making us new and is guaranteeing us a place in heaven for all eternity. And so I pray that through this hope, you would guide us and make us feel secure. 
that each day with its own troubles would not cause us to feel ultimate despair, but would cause us to lean even more on you, that despair and suffering and difficulty points us even more to the need of our Savior. And so I pray that you would give that to us. I pray for those who don't have that hope yet, that they would see it here present in Jesus Christ, and that they would repent of their sins, turn to him, and be saved for eternity. We ask this in the name of our loving Savior, the Lamb seated on the throne, Jesus Christ. Amen.